Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 9th, 2023. Uh, it's a cheerful day in San Francisco, nice sunny day, but we're not here today to talk about cheerfulness. We did a show uh, last week with a couple of biographers of Tony Sue, the founder of, Zoo, uh, of uh, Zappos, the online share shoe company that um, traded not just shoes, but happiness. Uh, Tony Shoe had a very unfortunate death. He was a deeply depressed man who, it seems, committed suicide in a horrible fire a couple of years ago. Uh, they have a new book out called Wonder Boy. Uh, this issue of happiness and of misery and how to deal with the nature of the world was also addressed by many other guests on the show, including an Australian philosopher, a young Australian philosopher called Wendy Seifert, who believes that the only way we can be happy in the world is by accepting life's uh, meaninglessness. She has a new book out, The Sunny Nihilist. She's appropriated, I guess, the term nihilism. So how to live? how to deal with the meaningless or perhaps the meaningfulness of life. Uh, some of our guests believe that discomfort is essential, not just for a meaningful life, but also for a happy death. Uh, discomfort is one way, perhaps, a euphemism for describing unhappiness, um, which is the subject we're talking with my guest today, Mariana Alessandri. She's a philosopher based in South Texas in McAllen near the border. She has a new book out, Night Vision, Seeing Ourselves Through Dark Moods. Uh, it's a fascinating book, fascinating thesis. I'm not sure if it's very cheerful, but Mariana is joining us uh, today. Mariana, congratulations on the book. Should I congratulate you on the book or should I uh, elicit miseries here? Oh, you know what? The miseries come by themselves. So <laughs> congratulations is fine. Yeah, the book comes out today. So it's good. A good day. Well, congratulations. Um, night vision is a nice uh, summary, I think, of, of what you're trying to say in the book. Are you suggesting that life is lived in in the fog of night, that, uh, that we need the night vision to get through it? Yeah, I, I, my metaphor in the book is uh, Plato's Cave. And so what he gives us is this image of a bunch of prisoners living in a cave. They don't know they're prisoners, but they're shackled at the, the neck and the arms and the feet. And all they see in front of them are these shadows, which are being projected from people behind them who are puppeteers. And there's a fire behind them and then the puppeteers. So the, the people behind them are just walking around with puppets of trees and people and everyday things. And so the prisoners see the shadows on the wall and they think that's real. They think shadows are reality until one day someone comes in and, and liberates one of the prisoners. This is from Socrates' story from Plato's Republic. And he forces the person to look, to turn around and he gets sort of blinded by the fire. And then he sees the puppeteers with the puppets and then the liberator forces him out into the sunlight and he gets outside and he again gets blinded. And Plato tells us that he likes to look at the ground at first because on the ground you can see shadows. And that reminds him of his time in the cave. 
And he can see those things like that's reality to him. And he looks at the water because on the water you can see reflections. And Socrates tells us he likes, he prefers night to day because he can see things. But then slowly, slowly he becomes accustomed to the sun and he, you know, he gets enlightened. And the way that many, I think most philosophers and people who have heard the story, the way they interpret it is that when you get out into the light, you gain knowledge. And so we have words like enlightenment, illumination, shed light on the problem. We think of light as the thing that saves. And I always wondered when I read that story as, well, what about those puppeteers? Right. I don't think necessarily that it was the light that saved the man. I think it was getting away from the puppeteers in the cave who we don't even know if they were doing it on purpose or if they were another kind of prisoner. So Socrates tells us so little. And so I always wondered, OK, what about the puppeteers? Can I write about them? Can I think about the world in terms of shadows? What are we seeing on the walls of society and how close is it to reality or are the things that we're seeing in our society actually not what is but there's like a deeper truth that we can gain still we could go back in the cave right like the, the problem isn't the darkness of the cave or the light of the sun the problem is that we are being fed lots of messages in our society that if we listen to them um and and get our education from them then we might be sort of getting the world a bit wrong mariana of course uh plato's Republic imagines a, a society ruled by philosophers uh, where I guess, as you're suggesting, everyone will be encouraged, perhaps even forced to, to look at the sun, to, to live in the light. Are you suggesting that the natural way of life, if, if you were to create your own republic, Mariana or Alessandri's republic, that it would be lived in the cave rather than outside in the sunlight? Yeah, no, uh, that's an interesting move that people tend to make uh, in response to my book is to understand me as saying that we should just live in the cave, turn off all the lights, and that's it. Um, and what I am trying to say, you know, it, it is all a metaphor for dark moods, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what I'm trying to say in the end is that we can go back and forth, that the cave actually provides a great shelter, right? Caves are cool places like we don't need to be like I live in South Texas. If I was out in the sun all day long for all of time, the way that people say you should be sunny, be sunny always. And I think, wow, that would actually kill us. Like we can't be sunny always because we're half dark. Like as humans, we can live we can live in both. We can go out in the sun. Sometimes we can go back in the shade. We can sit under a shady tree. So there's lots of ways to play with the metaphor to say we don't have to choose all light. But I think we've gone so much in that direction in terms of love and light and, you know, uh, stay positive and all this kind of thing that we are missing the dark. So I do think that my book comes at a time. It's kind of a provocative suggestion that we lean into the dark of our moods for a while, right? Like for a time. And I, I don't think we can skip the step because we're so, at least in the U.S., which is my context, uh, we're so conditioned to think that light is better than dark. Light is beautiful and, you know, uh, brilliant, right? And dark is ugly and dangerous and ignorant. And I think that we're half, half light moods and half dark moods and sometimes more dark than light and sometimes more light than dark. So I don't want to throw away the part of us that's dark. I want to honor it and honor ourselves because 
the sorts of things I hear from my students about their dark moods leads me to believe that they just think that they're broken. And that's what I want to try to intervene and say, hold on a second, we're um, sort of tyrannized by what some people call po po uh, toxic positivity or the tyranny right. of the positive the, uh, attitude. The tyranny, of, uh, the tyranny yeah. of Zappos. I mean, I know it's a rather facile thing, but the kind of cheerfulness, the happiness that killed, uh, that killed Tony Sewer. I'm sure you're familiar with the, the story of so-called Wonder Boy. You have a wonderful description of your, uh, maybe you'll correct me if it's, a, if it's not a philosophy, but you write on your website, as long as I live in a world where people apologize for crying in public, uh, I will write books and essays on why complaining is good, while cheerf why cheerfulness isn't, and why Mr. Rogers was right, that Everyone has lots of ways of, of feelings uh, and all those feelings uh, are fine. And indeed, you have uh, written, you've written for the New York Times, Aon, New York Times about uh, on Mr. Rogers' terrible day in the neighborhood. And that's OK. That was one of your op-eds from 2019. What is it about America, um, Mariana, that encourages us, perhaps forces us to be so cheerful and to associate being cheerful with being normal. Yeah. So I think about this all the time. And I, um, if, if you can show that screen, that would be helpful. If not, then I can. This is the screen you gave me before, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is a Mariana slide, um, which uh, you can talk through, Mariana. Can you what I'm talking about. Like, this is the world that I feel like I live in. And other people, when they see this, say, oh, I live in that world too. Now, if you don't live in this world, I don't know. Maybe it's different. Right, and we have other... a screen from Mariana up for people just listening. So Mariana, yeah. perhaps you might describe what yeah. we're looking at. It's, it's kind of just all memes from the internet that I see on posters and pillows and even rocks. So one of them says, you know, optimism with a, a thumbs up. One of them says, choose happy. A, a, a saying is be like a proton, always positive. One of them says it will get brighter. And that's actually a poster that's up in my airport. Uh, be happy, cheer people up when they're sad. Hashtag no bad days. That's a shirt that my kid's soccer coach wears. Um, so, and then there's one that just says you be let happy. Your kids always. play soccer, do you? Yeah. You can't stop them, I guess. <sighs> um, yeah, so in South Texas, soccer's huge, although we call it football a lot of the time. Um, so be happy always, the whole idea that we could be all light, all love and light. So, so the books that come out are Eliminate Negative Thinking, Overcome Your Anxiety. And I just think, oh, we're in trouble here because when things are good, we can believe that we made it happen. So, so I'm going to just focus in, on this idea, choose happy. I think it's a particular mixture of uh, stoicism which um, a lot of contemporary sort of thinking comes from Stoicism. And Stoicism basically said, we may not be able to control the world outside of us, but we can certainly control our own world. We can control our feelings. We can control if we're upset. And the Stoics didn't want us feeling upset because then we're not happy, right? So we can actually control our feelings, according to the Stoics. So that's one end, is that we can be happy. They say, change your attitude not your surroundings. That's from a letter of Seneca that my students love. Change right. your and, attitude, uh, not and, your surroundings. Uh, and the Stoics have become very fashionable. You, this book, Night Vision, Seeing Ourselves Through Dark Moods, is your own personal meditation on how 
painful emotions can reveal truths about what it means to be truly human. You, um, in some ways, it's a history of philosophy, but not of cheerful of philosophy, not of uh, positive philosophy. Uh, you, you cover a lot of ground in the book. You deal with one, a lot of these people I actually have to admit I hadn't heard of, the Spanish writer Miguel de Unamuno, who's an interesting character. Tell me about Unamuno, why you use him as an example in your book of, I wouldn't say the benefits of unhappiness, but perhaps the truth of unhappiness. Yeah, um, I would say the dignity of, of the person who's unhappy. So Unamuno was a um, Spanish philosopher known for being kind of extreme on his, uh, he says... <laughs> When I have felt a pain, I have shouted it out publicly because he believed that pain brings us together. And a lot of people like in the U.S., I think we're taught that, you know, when someone's down, you're supposed to bring them up. Right. You cheer someone up. They're negative. So you give them a lot of positive. But you if you've been on the uh, like the receiving end of that, it can be really annoying when you're down and you're kind of not feeling well. And then someone tells you to cheer up or all the horrible things that we say to each other it can make you feel alone and ashamed of yourself and, and disappointing them, right? You feel bad that you're disappointing them. But Unamuno turned it around and he said, no, it's not. When we're in, he said, actually, bodies get joined by pleasure, but souls get joined by pain. And so when you're in pain is like an opportunity to see other suffering souls. So he and his wife, Concha, lost their baby when he was six years old. And he said that he and his wife were crushed under the same pestle in the same mortar and he just said that it opens up this opportunity to connect with another person and so the problem is that if we're told from childhood that my pain is a burden and I'm not supposed to give my burden to other people then we're missing out on those connections and then we end up with a lot of very superficial connections based on you know small talk or things but it's when we can get down into the real life, the real things that are making us anxious and sad and grieving and um, angry that he believes that we can actually see each other. So he also gives this beautiful image of two guitars uh, that when they're near each other and one of them starts resonating, like one of the strings gets, gets pulled, the other strings also uh, resonate. And so I think of that, well, he's talking about heartstrings, right? So he says, when my heartstrings are are kind of um, activated, then a person near me should also, their heartstrings should also be activated. And I, you know, you can test it with your own experience. If someone around you is sad or crying or something, do your heartstrings get activated? And he said, in the best of cases, yes. And someone asked him, well, what happens if they don't? And he said, well, either the person doesn't have heartstrings or their heartstrings are frozen. And I think that that happens to a lot of US Americans because we're so uncomfortable, we're inept at dealing with another person's pain that our hearts don't resonate and we don't know what to say. And so oftentimes we just run away. Right, we and we you know, and often, uh, Mariana, we perhaps medicalize it. We've done many, many shows on what some people believe is an epidemic of, uh, of mental health in this country. You're a philosopher rather than a psychologist or a, a doctor, but do you think that some of the supposed epidemic of, 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 of mental health is a reflection of the fact that misery is considered uh, odd and that we shouldn't be miserable. 
Yeah. I mean, with books like that say overcome your anxiety, I think there's a misunderstanding that anxiety is built into us and anxiety. I mean, according to Kierkegaard, he says anxiety is the, the, the more anxiety a person has, the more sophisticated they are. Like the, he says, the more anxious a society, the more profound, because it's not just sort of going along with life. It's recognizing all of the dangers that are out there. And so I want to give new language. So in the book, what I'm doing is I'm taking old philosophies like Stoicism and Plato and Aristotle and giving new words using existentialists, right? Like Kierkegaard, like Unamuno, right. you, to, you, to you, think you. of it differently. Yeah, existentialism. I, I had a show yesterday and I asked, it was a business writer, and I asked uh, him a, a challenging question and he got all defensive and says, oh, that's an existential question. What, what does existentialism mean? Uh, it's often, you know, here on Wikipedia, it's dominated by four men, as it happens. Kierkegaard, you've already mentioned, Dostoevsky, Sartre, who's perhaps most famously associated with existentialism and Nietzsche. Um, how would you summarize existentialism? Are you an existentialist? Yes. So I feel completely at home in existentialism. And the way that I think of it for myself is that the writers that I tend to gravitate toward as existentialists all are talking about the human condition as one of suffering. So we are fundamentally beings who suffer, we bleed, we die, and we watch the people we love like bleed and die. And that is so easy to ignore in our society or cover over that so a lot of, I think, underlying conditions maybe that we have have to do with suppressing that or not thinking about it. I mean, it certainly happens when I talk to my students. They don't even want to talk about their parents dying. They don't even want to think about it, right? So it's this inevitable thing. I mean, even Seneca was saying you have to practice death in advance. You can't let it creep up on you because this is the kind of thing that's incredibly difficult. It's a part of the storm of life. So I think of existentialists as people who are dealing with bedrock, like problems and conditions and the kinds of moods that I'm dealing with. So I think I think of human beings as like a human being is someone who like holds your hair while you vomit and holds your hand while you die. Like I have this very it's I don't even think of it as pessimistic. I think of it as a very realistic. Yeah, but it's no wonder your newsletter is called In the Cave. Maybe yeah. it should be maybe it should be called In the Asylum. I mean, what <laughs> what's your take on this whole almost an industry around Michel Foucault and this idea of insanity and institutionalization. Do you buy into that? Is, is Foucault in your camp as an existentialist, at least as a historian? I mean, I've read some Foucault. I was very sort of mesmerized by, by that book, Madness and Civilization in, in college, but I don't, I'm not a Foucaultian. I think he's right about a lot of things, but I think um, I, there was a book in the 1980s, called Plato Not Prozac. And I think that was maybe coming out of a Foucaultian point of view, like it's either or. And I just think that if I had, you know, to, to give a quick summary of my book, like I'm okay with Plato and Prozac. I don't think that the answer, although I do think that, you know, the medical industrial complex is benefiting from people thinking they're broken. I don't think that's enough, like that the actual real help that people get from medicine and therapy is important. And so I don't think it needs to be dismissed or turned off. But I, I would like to sort of add to those that language. Like I, I, I want all the words we have are um, illness, infirmity, condition, 
mental illness, deficiency, broken brain, like the words that my students and other people kind of use to describe their conditions, there's nothing good about it, right? So I want to use other metaphors and other words to describe what are human conditions and still allow for and encourage the use of medication if it helps and therapies if they help, right? And, and, and especially with therapy, like how you define your anxiety, for example, is going to determine what kind of a therapist you're going to seek out, right? Whether you think it's a list of symptoms or whether you think that it makes you, as Kierkegaard said, higher than the animals and angels, right? Will determine whether you're going to listen to it or try to get rid of it. And so Mariana, I think it's not just unhappiness you deal with in your book. Also the issue of anger. We've done some shows on anger, one with the African-American uh, theorist, philosopher, Maisha Cherry on anger as a tool. She sees anger as a good thing for addressing racism. She was very influenced by the African-American poet, Audre Lorde. I know you write about Lorde in your book too. Uh, why do we have so much trouble with anger? Why is anger such a controversial subject in our culture? So I, I think we're getting that also from the Stoics. I think we're taught that anger, I, I often hear people say, well, no good can come from anger. There's no use in getting angry. And those are Stoic ideas. Like the Stoics, like I said, would say, I'm sorry for getting angry. They thought we could control our anger and not get angry, just like decide that we're not going to get angry. And people like Audre Lorde say, well, A, that's not true. And B, she says every woman has an arsenal of anger that's just waiting to get tapped into. But if you raise a people thinking they don't have anger or they should suppress their anger, then A, you're going to get a, a society full of sick, especially women, because women tend to suppress anger, sick women, but also people who don't listen to it and people who don't change anything, right? The stoic principle is based on, we can't really change the world, we can only change ourselves. And so all this anger is going to waste because it's causing kind of, it could be causing chronic pain within the body, and it's just not getting used as information. Like if we listen to Audre Lorde and Maria Lugones, Anger looks not like poison. It looks like information. Lugones says it's right. You mentioned uh, Lugones, um, uh, Maria Lugones, who's a, an Argentine uh, philosopher now based in the U.S. Tell me a little bit about her and how Lugones and, and Lord fit together. Yeah. So Lugones passed away recently, um, but they both just... Uh, are trying to be differently educated about it. So I ask in my book, like, what would we think of anger if we would be educated by women of color on anger rather than by the Stoics and Aristotle on anger? And so what Lugona says is that there's a lot of angers. There's not just one. And so it would help us if we could actually get more specific about what kind of anger. And we can go back to the Greeks for the different words for the different angers, but also that it's information like Lord. She also says, Lugones says that it's, it can be outrageously clear-headed. And what we're told from the ancients is that when you're angry, you're very clouded. And what you really need is to calm down. And you shouldn't say anything out of anger because you're going to regret it. I know that if I stop and I calm down and I don't get it out, then I think, oh, it was no big deal. Whatever. Oh, I was just being silly. And I know a lot of people who are like me, when you calm down, you lose it, but the anger didn't go away. You just didn't act on it. And so then it builds and builds and builds. So Lugones is saying, listen for the clarity. Once you stop caring how people think of you, oh, she looks ugly, angry. Oh, you know, she's, you know, a bad word. Like, no, if we're listening to it, we can be very clear headed. Once we stop caring how people are seeing us, 
We're just trying to get the point across. And that point may be very important to get across. Yeah, one of the criticisms of some schools of existentialism is they're not political enough. But once you introduce anger, perhaps politics becomes central as well. Uh, as I said at the beginning, you're in South Texas on the border of McAllen. Are you angry about the world? Um, I'm guessing, uh, Mariana, we, we've only just started talking, but you're not someone who is shy to articulate your unhappiness about the nature of the world, not just the nature of your own self. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely angry. I'm dispositionally angry. Um, I'm angry almost every day. So it's easy for me to sort of like think about it. But for so many years, it made me assume that I was a monster. So the equation of anger with monster, because women, especially women, are not supposed to get angry. I just had a student present a paper on unladylike anger, where she's using Lord and Lugones to really try to unpack what to do with all the anger that we feel. And so, yes, I'm very angry, like, you know, at, at little things, like often just at very small things. But if we're listening to these women, and that what that's what I want to be the next step is after my book, let's actually try to put these things into practice. If we don't default to anger makes me a monster, or the way I put it, crazy, irrational, and ugly, if I don't default to that, if I default to anger as information, then Lord and Lugones would say, okay, let's try to use it. Let's think of how to use it. And so if you're going to take a pause, the idea isn't to get rid of it or to suffuse it, like punching a punching bag they would probably say that's but a legitimate and illegitimate anger when it comes to politics, just as you're angry and Lord is angry and Lugones was angry about the nature of the world. There are angry vigilantes in, in South Texas shooting at what they think of as, as illegal immigrants. Can, can we legitimize some sorts of anger over others or is it really just in the eye of the beholder? No, I think there are legitimate angers and illegitimate angers. And I don't, I can't go into, like, I can't figure that out for a person. My point is to kind of get anger to neutral so that we can actually judge it. We can look at it. But if by default we're saying, I'm sorry, I got angry. If by default we're dismissing it and saying the very feeling of anger was wrong, then we're never going to be able to see whether it's virtue or vice. But I don't think that every anger is justified. That's for sure. Nor do I think every anger is just out of hand wrong or irrational or crazy. I think that there's a lot of anger. Lord makes a nice distinction between, she says, hatred is not anger. And the difference is that, um, oh, she says about, about um, anger, she says its object is change. So that is the thing to hold on to. Is our object change or is our object just hatred? And that, that could be one way that we could start judging our angers to see what is really behind this and judging other people's angers. But I definitely want to leave that for other people who can do that work. I just want to get it back to a, get it for the first time to a neutral place where we don't default to anger's wrong. Uh, Mariana, one guy shows up in your book who uh, I have to admit I wouldn't have expected um, is C.S. Lewis, of course, the author um, of the Chronicles of, of, of Narnia, very associated with Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Um, how does Lewis fit in with some of the other characters in the book one wouldn't have expected, like uh, Audrey Lord and, um, uh, and, and, and Lugones? They're usually not spoken of in the same uh, in the same sentence. What ties Lewis and Lugones and Lord together? He had a real understanding of suffering that he didn't even know that he had. So 
he had been, before his wife died, he would give other grievers all these very Christian platitudes of, you know, it's all going to be okay. God wants them. God's, you know, calling an angel when someone dies. Uh, he would give these platitudes. And as soon as his wife died, he was absolutely crushed in a, probably a similar way to Unamuno when his son died. And he realized, wow, like I have not been paying attention to this mood as real. And so he wrote about his grief and the book, like, first of all, he tried to publish it. T.S. Eliot didn't want it until he knew that it was C.S. Lewis. And even then he said, I will only publish it under a pseudonym. So the book came out as a pseudonym. It was an absolute embarrassment to everyone. C.S. Lewis himself was embarrassed of it because he's British, which for him meant like raised to hide your pain. You do not showcase your pain. This is an embarrassment, my weeping, but he wrote about it and he kept writing about it and he didn't burn it and he didn't keep it in a drawer. He was like, I'm going to keep writing about this and I'm going to publish it. And the fact is it has helped so many people recognize that grief is very normal and wh whatever way you grieve is fine. And so he's in there because he had this like very visceral experience. All the writers I think about are experiencing these moods, not just talking about them. So I'm trying to analyze his book from within the mood of grief to show both how society gets it wrong. They really mess it up when they tell us they're in a better place or it all happens for a reason. But then also how he, you know, responded to that and said, no, I'm not listening to you. Right. Like I will make a place for grief. And a lot of grievers have benefited from him, from his example. Mariana, we've coming to the end of the conversation at this point, usually in our conversation, someone one of my guests is usually describing some problem, some sort of unhappiness. And I always say, well, how are we, we going to get people to cheer themselves up? How are we going to make them better? How are we going to address misery of one kind or another? But with you, I'm guessing the reverse is true. Uh, as I said, your newsletter is called In the Cave. Um, your new book is called Night Vision, Seeing Ourselves Through Dark Moods. I I'm guessing that for you, your advice to people is, if not to embrace the darkness, to come to terms with it, accept it as being normal, and to learn to live with it. Is that fair? I think my greater goal is that we begin to see people who live with dark moods as dignified. So on the individual level, yes, it will probably involve not... Um, I just hesitate to give people homework, like like the the self help industry. Even if turns... you're in the in the in 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 the college business, don't you give your students homework? <laughs> yes, but not in the writing business, right? Self help turns on. I'm already suffering, and now I have to do homework. Now there's something else. Oh, grab yourself by the bootstraps. Now you have to do change your attitude. And so my book is written. Yes, it's sort of self help in that people seem to get recognition, but they say. It helps me because I, you just made a, you made space for me to exist as myself. So I don't think that the people who are grieving or suffering are doing anything particularly wrong. I want to change society. So I'm also into like a social critique, put the lens onto the way that society makes us feel broken for being anxious or broken for being depressed and how I want to change the way that society talks about our dark moods, not necessarily the way that I do. So lean in or don't lean in is very much up to the person. But if you lean in, if you're the kind of person who believes with Unamuno that sharing your pain is a gift to other people, then you have every right to. And then other people, right? I'd like to kind of work more on educating other people as to how to respond. Some of my students ask me, like, what can I do? How do I cheer someone up? 
And the best response that I have found so far is that it's not our job to cheer other people up. But it is our job. If we love the person, it's our job to stay with them in the dark. Yeah, I like the idea of not our job to cheer people up. And finally, Mariana, we had someone on the show last year talking about mental health as the next big civil rights issue. I'm not sure you would quite put it in those terms, but but certainly the issue of the rights of the unhappy seemed to be, in a sense, central to your work and thinking. Is that fair? Yeah. And that's why I don't want to drop all the medical language, because that's how you get um, that's how you get access. Right. We need diagnoses. We need uh, we need health insurance. Right. That's how you get the help that you need. And so if there's there is definitely unequal like Ansaldua could not afford uh, medication, even if she had wanted it. She, she didn't have any health insurance. So I don't want to drop that. I just want to infuse it with other metaphors where we can think about these dark moods in ways that make us feel dignified and don't make us feel like we're just garbage and we're trying to eliminate the garbage part of us because then we end up eliminating the whole self. So, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think there's a lot to be said on, on mental health, mental illness, mental health awareness month, but so much of it just comes in the form of destigmatization, which I don't think works to give a person dignity. It only tells us, Oh yeah, a lot of us are depressed or a lot of us are anxious, but it doesn't reword. It doesn't reeducate us on you know how these things are part of being human so we still feel we just all feel like freaks right all my students feel anxious they just don't know each other are anxious but even then when they learn it that's not good enough to feel good about it until we start reading Kierkegaard and then they say oh I didn't know it was a form of emotional intelligence I never thought about it that way 